Let's pray. Father God, your word tells us that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, part of who you are is that you don't change. And as your people this morning, we thank you for that. And God, you know that this world has been hijacked and tainted by sin. And so in these next few moments, we ask for clarity. We ask that you would teach and you would instruct our minds and hearts. And above all else, we ask uh, that your spirit would be among us. God, your truth, not our preference, not our feelings, not what is most popular, is what's best for us. And so thank you for Jesus who came to redeem us and save us from the evil that resides within each of us today. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, I stood on stage at the Ford Center and said, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? I then promised that as a church, we would address the most frequently asked questions that you submitted to us via text message. Now, by far the most frequently asked question that we received from you had to deal with the topic of homosexuality. Now, this really came to no surprise at all. I mean, after all, this is perhaps the most controversial subject and issue of our day and age. I mean, every direction you turn, it's there. And so here were a few questions that we received from you on Easter Sunday. Does God accept homosexuals? Another question was this, is homosexuality a sin and where are the verses to back it up? It's a very important question. Isn't the homosexual debate the same as the civil rights debate? Why are some people gay? Very straightforward. How do I interact with my homosexual son? Another question, is same-sex marriage okay as long as the partners do not participate in sexual activity? Another question was this, will I go to hell because I'm gay? And so up front, I want to make known that if you are a practicing homosexual or you struggle with same-sex attraction, I want you to know how glad we are that you are here God loves you and he cares deeply for you. And regardless of what you have been told in the past, you matter to him and you need to know that Jesus died for you. And so before we go any further today, absolutely. Before we go any further today, I think it's important that we establish a few things up front in an effort to bring some clarity to this discussion before we open up Scripture. And so the first thing that I want to throw out there is this, that there is a difference between acceptance and approval. There's a difference between acceptance and approval. Now, our culture today wants us to believe that to accept somebody means that you must approve of everything that they do and how they live. Now, as followers of Jesus, we are called to accept and embrace all people. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we approve of every decision that they make or how they choose to live. If that were the case, then we would be encouraging the very thing that Jesus died for 2,000 years ago, and that was our sin. Now, really, um, what's at stake here is the fact that the definition of tolerance has kind of changed and shifted as the years have gone on. Now, tolerance used to mean that all ideas and all views are, we don't necessarily agree on them, but even in our disagreements, we can still respect one another. That's what tolerance used to mean. Tolerance today now means that all views, all ideas, all philosophies are, are equally valid. And so really at the heart of this debate is the philosophy of relativism. What's true for you 
isn't necessarily true for me. And yet logical reasoning shows us that truth must be determined by a higher higher and greater power. Because if not, then just about anything can be done and justified by someone saying, well, you know what? It was true for me. You see, relativism is an assault on the creator God who has clearly established moral absolutes in our life. You know, one of the most loving things that you can do for me as a disciple and as a follower of Jesus is to not approve of everything that I do. Why? Because I'm a sinner. There's sin in my life. And so Jesus, he accepts and he embraces all people, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he approves of everything that we do and how we choose to live. Max Lucado once said that God loves you just the way that you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. Another thing that we need to understand is this, that a person's sexual preference is not his or her primary identity. Now, oftentimes people, we associate others based upon their sexual preference, their gender, their race, their ethnicity, if they're married or if they're single. Now, this isn't always harmful, and sometimes it's inevitable for the sake of discussion, but like what Ken talked about last week, what we need to realize is that all people, gay or straight, are made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says it like this, So God created mankind in his own image, male and female, he created them. And so what we see right here at the beginning of time is the, are the original blueprints for humanity. And what God has done is he has deemed all people valuable because we are all made in his image. Whether you are in the faith following Jesus, regardless of your sexual preference, you are made in the image of God. Now, here's the thing. History shows us that when we forget that, we are capable of justifying horrific acts. I mean, when we stereotype or we justify or, or when we um, objectify different types of people in an effort to claim superiority, there's no telling what will follow. And so rather, all life is sacred. All people are valuable. You see, fewer things dishonor the name of God more than when we believe that we are more deserving of grace and forgiveness than others. And so in regards to this talk today, let us remember that those who are in the gay and lesbian community are real people who live real lives and who have real needs, and ultimately that need can be found in Jesus Christ alone. Now, Romans chapter 3, Paul says it like this. He says, no one is righteous, not even one. He says, no one is truly wise, no one is seeking God, all have turned away, all have become useless, no one does good, not a single one. Glad you came to church today. Now, if you don't believe that we are born with this nature to be disobedient or we have this sin nature in our life, you've probably never had a two-year-old before. All, right, all the parents in the room said amen. Amen. <laughs> Our two-and-a-half-year-old, he's our oldest, he's our son, and he is very independent. He's very, he loves to do his own thing. If I say, hey, John Ryman, don't go over and touch the blinds, what does he do? He goes over and takes a hammer and smashes them in. <laughs> if I say, John Ryman, no more M&Ms for the night, what does he do? He goes over to the candy drawer, picks up that bag of M&Ms, brings it back to me, and then he expects me to open it up for him. <laughs> Therefore, it's evident to me that he is his mother's son. And so though all people are created in the image of God, 
We are all born with this desire to be disobedient. We have this sin nature because at the end of the day, we love to believe that we're smarter than God. God, don't, don't tell me how to use my money. I mean, after all, I, I worked hard for it. God, you can have all things in my life, but the way I treat my husband right now, that's kind of off limits. I mean, after all, he's just getting what he deserves. God, don't tell me that I, don't tell me that I can't live with my girlfriend before marriage. I mean, I think it's just important that I kick the tires before going all in. Now, we would probably never verbalize those words out loud. But you know what? We don't have to. Because the way we choose to live our life is a much louder statement. Again, our base issue is that we believe we are smarter than God. Back in the 1900s in Great Britain, uh, the Times newspaper sent out an inquiry to a bunch of famous authors at the time asking this one question. They said, what is wrong with the world today? Well, theologian G.K. Chesterton wrote back and he simply said this. He said, dear sir, I am. And you see, whether or not you want to admit it today or not, that's really all of our stories as well. Now, if you have your Bibles, what I want you to do is go ahead and open up to the New Testament book of Matthew. Matthew is towards the back of your Bibles, right in between the book of Malachi in the Old Testament and the New Testament book of Mark. Now, the book of Matthew serves as a biography of the life of Jesus. Today we're going to be in chapter 19. I believe it's on page 696 in the Bibles right in front of you. We're going to pick up in verse 4, and where we pick up today, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, were trying to trap Jesus in this corner, and were questioning him, his view on marriage. And so where we pick up today is his response, Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, here's what Jesus says. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female. This is a reference to Genesis 1 that we just read. Jesus said, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then Jesus ends by saying this, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so according to, the, according to Christ, in this moment, he articulates the definition of marriage and clarifies his original purpose. And so according to him from this moment, and let us remember that Jesus is Lord, that he is the author, he is the creator of marriage, and since he walked out of his own grave, we submit to his authority. And so according to him, this is what he says marriage is. He says it is one man and one woman. That's it. Yes, it is exclusive. It is exclusive. And so what that means, Jesus is saying, is that anything outside of this box or anything altered or changed inside this box is not good and is not God's best for our life, meaning it would be sin. And so what that means, according to Christ here, is that pornography, polygamy, adultery, same-sex uh, same marriage, uh, homosexuality, um, any type of sexual sin is not God's best for our life because it, it nullifies the original purpose and intent for marriage and intimacy that God established at the beginning of time. You see, marriage is sacred because it is the best, most tangible illustration that we have for God's love and his pursuit for us. That's why Revelation chapter 19, we, the people of God, the church, are referred to as the bride 
of Christ. A challenging men in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. How did he do that? He gave himself up for her. And so if it's true, if it's true that marriage is an image modeling the love God has for the world, then is it really any wonder that the evil one has hijacked it in an effort to taint everyone's view of the gospel You see, Satan loves to distort what is sacred because he understands that it keeps people from knowing and experiencing the delight in the fullness of God. And so those in a same-sex relationship, we need to understand, are not the enemy, but rather are the victims of a spiritual battle that you and I can't see. And so likewise, when a marriage between two believers ends in divorce, When a teenager grows up concluding that she'll never marry because of the abuse she witnessed in her home. When marriages are continually portrayed on TV as this dreadful bondage that you succumb to. When mainline denominations allow pastors in a homosexual relationship to serve in the church. You are seeing right before your very eyes an attempt to degrade something that is holy and good. And just this past week... um, you may have heard on the news, Los Angeles Clippers owner Don Sterling was fined $2.5 million and banned for life from the NBA after being caught on tape making racial comments to his girlfriend. Now, rightfully so, he was blasted from just about every angle, celebrities and media alike, for some of the awful things that he said. And you know what? They were right in their criticism of his nasty words that I don't even feel comfortable repeating myself But did you notice how he made the comments to his girlfriend? Yet he is a married man. And so the subtle message you walked away with was racism is not okay. But you know what? Adultery is. It just made me realize that our world, our culture today has such a low view of marriage that we have forgotten what it really is and what it is not. It's like we have just grown numb to it. Now, like all sexual sin, the idea of homosexuality being called sin and not God's best is consistent throughout the pages of Scripture. Now, if you would, and if you have your Bibles right in front of you, I want you to flip over to the right to Romans chapter 1. Romans is again in the New Testament, right in between the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians. And the author here is a guy by the name of Paul, and he's writing this letter to recipients who were immersed in a culture that were embracing homosexuality left and right. Now, historians note that back then, the lifestyle was actually viewed as more superior than those in a heterosexual relationship. In fact, 14 out of the first 15 Roman emperors were considered homosexuals. And so I want you to take a look at verse 18 and look at what Paul says. He says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And so what Paul is describing here in this verse is the rejection of mankind against God. Well, where is that leading us to? Again, we think we're smarter than God. Skip to verse 24. Here's what he, here's what he continues to say. He says, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And so this verse here, it describes the passive wrath of God. 
And so what Paul says here is that what we have done is we have said, God, we don't really want you. We just kind of want your stuff. And in his wisdom and in his grace, God says, okay. Now we think we're getting away with it when we disobey. But it's only a matter of time until it catches up with us. This would be like a uh, parent catching their teenage son smoking cigarettes one afternoon and they tell him not to do it again for hygiene and health purposes. But say a few days later they catch him smoking cigarettes again and after trying to reason with them, the parents just eventually throw in the towel and they said, okay, don't come running to us when your teeth are yellow, your lungs are black and no girl even wants to think about kissing you. (laughs) And so what God does is he allows sin to naturally run its course upon our life. Again, we think we're being smarter than God. Paul continues in verse 25. He says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie And they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Now what Paul is saying here is that the human heart is an idol making factory. That really is every one of our issues. Now the sobering image behind this betrayal, behind this act of treason that we have committed against the God of all creation is that we would rather serve created things rather than the creator himself. Imagine with me for a moment that you bought tickets for you and a friend to go watch the St. Louis Cardinals play one evening. How well would it go over if when you bought the tickets, you went to your friend, you gave it to him, they immediately took the tickets from your hand, went to the game by themselves, and maybe asked someone else to come with, to go with them. How would they go over? Not too well, right? Why? Because in that moment, it would reveal that your friend doesn't really want you, they just want what you maybe can provide. You see, it would expose that the tickets were more important to them than their friendship with you. And so what Paul is getting at here is that the base issue for all people is an issue of idolatry. You see, rather than accepting what God has graciously given to us and using that to praise and glorify him, stirring our affections for the Father, what we do is we end up focusing on the created thing, the thing that he's given us, and we completely ignore him. And so where's all this leading? What are some examples of this? Verse 26, Paul says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations. Again, this is just a reference to Genesis 1. With women and were inflamed with lust for one another, men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. And so in essence, here's here's what Paul is proclaiming. If a heterosexual marriage is a picture, is a picture of God's pursuit of us, the gospel, then a homosexual relationship is an image of man's rebellion against God. Because what we're saying is, you know what, God, I know you created it to be this way, but we think we know better. We think it needs to be this way. And so that's how we're going to live. That's how we're going to act. And really, that's what we all declare when sinning sexually. Now, God cares so much and so deeply for those in the gay and lesbian lifestyle that he forbids homosexual behavior Now, my observation has been that when it comes to this topic in the church, we need to avoid one side of the extreme where so-called Christians walk around with hateful signs saying gays go to hell, totally refusing to love the homosexual community. 
On the opposite side of the spectrum, we want to avoid crumbling under cultural pressure to a point where we approve of it and we call same-sex behavior what it is, and that's sin. And so let me be clear about something. If you remain convinced that the Bible is true, leading you to believe that homosexuality does not honor the Lord, you will be labeled a bigot, a homophobe, judgmental, and intolerant. But don't let this surprise you. You're in really good company. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. So just so you know, because I'm up here talking about this today, I guarantee you our attendance is going to drop. Some of you won't come back next week. And so really what it comes down to as a church and individually, do we, appro- do we fear the approval of God more than the approval of men? Now as Christ's ambassadors to a lost and dying world, we are called to shine our light and lead people to Jesus and let him fix them. My experience has been that the best way to do that when it comes to this complex issue is through grace and truth-filled dialogue. And so for the next few moments, what I want to do is throw out some arguments that people will give for justifying homosexuality from a scriptural perspective. What's sad is to see a lot of Christians crumble under cultural pressure and then use scripture to justify what for 2,000 years has been called sin. And so the first common objection that people will throw out is this. Don't judge someone who sins differently than you. Doesn't that sound so spiritual? While we certainly don't want to be known for how judgmental we are, honestly, this has become probably the theme verse for my generation. A lot of times it's completely taken out of context. Now, the verse in Scripture that is used to support this objection is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, when he says, don't judge or you too will be judged. Understand that Christ here is not forbidding us from calling sin what it is. I mean, after all, to do that would be to belittle what he did for us on on the cross. Rather, what he's telling us is to not attempt to know someone's motive and heart or where they stand with God. Now, Jesus would say that if you have the courage to confront a brother or sister in Christ on a particular sin in their life that they may be blind to, he would later say, just make sure the plank is out of your eye before calling the uh, speck of sawdust in your friend's eye. I mean, it's just logical. It just makes sense. I think many twist Jesus' words here to either excuse their own sin and behavior or give themselves an out when it comes to the awkwardness of confronting others. John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus and a prophet who lived in the wilderness and was always calling people to repent 2,000 years ago. Eventually, King Herod had him arrested because John called him out for having sex with his sister-in-law. Now, notice that Jesus didn't say to John, you know what, John, you really shouldn't have been so bold. I mean, you, you, sh- you probably really offended Herod for saying some of those things. I mean, who are you to judge for what he did? Who are you to say that? Rather, this is what Jesus says about his cousin. He says, I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. You see, God's message of acceptance is always partnered with our repentance. At the very beginning of his ministry, Matthew and Mark record that Jesus didn't open up by saying, Look, I accept and I approve of all people. Come give me a hug. 
No, but he did say, you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin and turn towards God. Therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality, but it is repentance. It's about your loneliness being satisfied in Christ alone. It's about your worth and your value being tied up into what Jesus has done for you. Now, the second objection that people will throw, uh, that will throw the, our way towards this is Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality. Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality. Now, this really is a rather weak argument, but it's one that you will hear. And what it does is it totally undermines the authority and the inerrancy of God's word. Now, to a degree, this is true. Jesus didn't come outright and say, you know what? All homosexual behavior is wrong. But using that line of reasoning, a lot of other things could be on that list, including rape. And so it would be foolish for us to conclude that Jesus' silence on this equates to his acceptance. Now really, Jesus did somewhat talk about it. Look at Mark chapter 7. Jesus says this. He says, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts. Anybody here? Sexual immorality? We'll get back to that word in just a moment. Theft, murder, adultery. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. And so really what Jesus is getting at here is that it's what's in. It's from what's in us that makes us unclean. Now in verse 21, the word where we get that word sexual immorality is from the Greek word porneia. And in its original meaning, it refers to extramarital or unnatural intercourse as God designed it to be at the beginning of creation. It's actually where we get the word pornography. And basically anything or outside of that box that we looked at a moment ago, Jesus would call porneia and is off limits. Again, this doesn't just go for homosexuality, but rather all sexual sin that some of us may be involved in. Just last week, it was during this hour, I was standing out in the atrium and I, ha I had a guy come up to me and he said, you know what, uh, I'm so glad that we are now Facebook friends. And I said, yeah, thanks so much for reaching out to me, Re really appreciated that. Well, I recently uploaded a brand new profile picture of my wife and I, it was just she and I on the profile picture. After he said that, he goes, you know what, when I first saw your profile picture, I thought it was a photo of you and your daughter. I wanted to say, I mean, I know I'm losing my hair, but you know, do, I, do I really look that old? I mean, come on. And so I'm not going to lie. Whenever I see Ken Eidelman's hair, I just get depressed. <laughs> but every time that happens, I have an image of Todd Bussey's hairline, and I tell myself, well, it could be worse. <laughs> now, when that guy said that to me, he did not write say, you know what, Patrick, you really look old for your age. I mean, goodness gracious, what... You're really aging quite quickly. No, he didn't say that, but you know what? He didn't have to because what he said, it was deeply implied by what he had said to me that, hey, is that your daughter in the profile picture? And so while Jesus never outright said homosexuality is forbidden for all those who want to follow me, the deeper implication behind his teachings on sexuality and marriage show us that he considered same-sex behavior as sinful. Besides... We're not just limited to the spoken words of Christ throughout his ministry to get his take on this matter. I mean, after all, Jesus wrote the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 states that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Well, the last most common objection that people will throw your way 
um, against the gay and lesbian lifestyle is this, that some people are just born that way. Some people are just born this way. And currently this is perhaps a, um, a much debated uh, topic when it comes to the issue of homosexuality. Uh, are people born that way? And I don't know, honestly, if we'll ever be able to land on an objective answer to this. So to a degree, there's somewhat of a mystery of it. Now, say, for example, that a study did come out and it did show beyond the shadow of a doubt that people are born with a natural chromosome that fosters same-sex attraction. Honestly, this wouldn't surprise me a bit. And so that's why when we talk about this, we must create a distinction between desire and behavior. We can't always control this, right? I mean, we can't always control what we want and what we desire, but what we do have control over is what those desires ultimately lead us to. And is that action and is that behavior? And so let me be clear about something. The desire or the attraction to someone of the same sex is not a sin. But it's what those desires and what those affections ultimately lead that person to. And if behavior and action takes place, that is what dishonors God, and that is sin. Now, just because I have a desire to walk over to D. Patrick Ford and steal a brand new Ford F-150 doesn't give me the right to do that, right? I can't control that desire, but that doesn't, again, give me permission to act on those urges. And so what I do is I say, okay, God, what does your word say about this? Well, do not steal, pretty straightforward. Therefore, I'm submitting my desires and my affections and what I yearn for through the filter of Scripture. It's what God declares is true. And in the same way, I know stories of individuals who have had homosexual desires since they were young. A guy by the name of Wesley Hill wrote a great book a few years ago called Washed and Waiting, where he transparently discusses his personal journey of fighting off same-sex attraction Raised to know and love Jesus in a solid Christian home, homosexual desires and tendencies have always been a temptation of his since he was young. Now he has prayed and he has fasted for God to shift his affections and his attractions towards women. But at 30 years of age, it still hasn't happened yet. Therefore, he has chosen celibacy as a way of honoring God. Now I want you to pick up on what he writes at the beginning of his book. He says this. He says, so much of my life, It has simply been about learning how to wait, to be patient, to endure, and to bear up under an unwelcome burden for the long haul. Having patience with your own weaknesses, I think, something of what Paul was commending when he described the tension of living on this side of wholeness. He says, when God acts climatically to reclaim the world and raise our dead bodies from the grave, there will be no more homosexuality. He then says, but until then, we hope for what we do not see. Now you see, this is a guy who has clearly drawn the line in the sand between desire and behavior and said, you know what? Because Jesus is Lord, I will trust his goodness and not act on my desires. And gratefully, we as a church can celebrate the fact that he seems to be faithfully walking in repentance. He understands that his identity is in Christ, not in comfort and not in his sexuality. Now, maybe you're here today and you really struggle with same-sex attraction, and perhaps in the past you've even acted on that before. I personally don't know what that's like. I imagine that these feelings you feel welling up inside of you lead you to isolation. You think you're alone. 
You think to yourself, man, if I ever, if I ever verbalize what I'm feeling, then I'll just be rejected and criticized and I'll hurt those who love me most. I want you to know, first of all, that I'm glad you're here and that Crossroads is a safe place. I would encourage you to begin surfacing some of these emotions and realizing that you don't have to journey through this all by yourself. Reach out to us on staff here at Crossroads. Look up our contact information by going to cccgo.com. We would love to talk with you and counsel you. We've got a great counseling center that is an available resource for you. And better yet, decide to join a small group. And in time, once trust has been established in that group, begin dragging some of these things to light. Because my experience has been is that darkness always loses its power when it's brought to light. And you remember that the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality, but it's repentance through submission to the Lordship of Christ. Now, I promise that as a church, we will let Jesus change your heart before we try to change your behavior. Now, we won't be a church that tries to fix you any more than a hospital would expect for you to get well before visit. You are not what's been done to you, but you are what Jesus has done for you. Now, I also know that there's another group of us in here in whom this message is particularly painful for. And that is those of us who have children in a same-sex relationship. I can't imagine what that's like. This probably weighs on you every single day. I can't imagine how difficult it is. My encouragement to you would be to never give up on the power of prayer. Speak the truth in love when you have the opportunity and at every chance you point your son or your daughter towards the throne of grace, towards Jesus. And you understand that you can't necessarily change your children but you can point them to the one who does, and that's Jesus Christ. And so what I thought we'd do today as we close is simply look at the words of Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is writing to a church that he really loved, and he wanted to remind these people of what they had been given, of the grace that they had, been, of the grace that they had received. And this is what he says. He says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Great way to end a message. <laughs> he says, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so what Paul does here is he says, look, we've all rebelled. We're all wicked. And then to get the ball rolling with what he was talking about, he starts listing off specific sins. And I imagine that as he's writing this letter, he has his church, the church in Corinth, in mind. And he's just going row by row and pew by pew of people and what their sin was to them. Maybe he had a pictorial directory in front of them. But the point was for everyone to be raising their hand at the end of this part of the letter, for people to be saying, you know what, that's me. Me too. Cards on the table. If I was a part of the church in Corinth 2,000 years ago, he'd be talking about me. And so what do we do with that? I mean, what's the answer? Well, Paul says this. And that is what some of you were. What happened? 
I mean, something significant had to occur in someone's life for them to be known by their sin to something else. Paul explains, he says, but you were washed. You were clean. You were sanctified. You were justified. How? By whom? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We love to say it around here a lot, and we really mean it, that there is not a past represented here today that is too messed up for Jesus to handle and for him to redeem. And if you need proof of that, I'm standing up here. That's my story. I'm so glad that you're here. Regardless of of your past, there's nothing that you have done that is bigger than the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I know that this message means so many things to different people in this room. Some of us, we take this pretty easy. Others of us, we, we take it kind of hard because of our circumstances. And so God, in these, as, we, as we walk out of here in these next few moments, Lord, would you just remind us of what we have been given through Jesus? Would you show us that there's nothing we've done that's bigger than the cross of Jesus? And on a daily basis, remind us that the tomb is empty, we have victory, and we have nothing to fear. And so, God, where there's unconfessed sin in our life, we ask that you would bring it to light. Where there's arrogance, we ask for humility. Where there's sexual immorality, where there's homosexuality, we ask for purity. It's only by your power and through your spirit can we be sanctified and washed and clean. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray and God.